Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stefan Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. I just like randomly thought of a question for this one. Okay. And I'm going to ask it, but I don't want an answer because I don't have an answer, unless you already have a good one. All right, if let's you see. were going to write a memoir, what would you call your memoir? <laughs> <laughs> So I actually had the back and forth about uh-huh. different titles. And I can't tell you because I've written them down. Um, oh. But it all involves something with like the fact that I have an undoing or untangling and or an unraveling of sorts. The unraveling of Samantha da, 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 of mm-hmm. some sort. That, that was my title. Just because it was like my memoir would have a lot to do with trying to piece together everything. So you have to undo everything to come mm-hmm. back to everything. Mm-hmm. Including the way I learned or the the beliefs that I had growing up and yeah. then having to undo that. That would have been a big piece of my memoir. So I actually do have an answer. Not an exact answer, but uh-huh. something along the lines answer. What about I you? love it. I think that's great. Um, I really don't have an answer. I will say a lot of the... I'm a very big title person. I think we've discussed this before, Samantha. You and I both love a good title. And usually my titles are very... Um, I don't want to say heavy-handed, but they're like dramatic. And a lot of the things (laughs) I like, um, puns also, but dramatic. But as we go through this fiction, like a lot of the, and we'll talk about them as we do them, but a lot of the times I name, I use something that is usually in reference to technology, Hmm. but I'll use it as like something deeper about the human condition. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we have one coming up called Deep Dream, and that's in reference to the Google Deep Dream where you can feed it images and it tries to make sense of what they are. And if you go look it up, it looks like the most trippy dream you've ever been on. Wow, I don't know this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it would be something like that. I'm going to think about it to return to later. So before we get into this one, which is a a book club and a memoir, if you're confused as well, we're talking about that. Uh, I did want to put a quick trigger warning here. We're not going to go too deep into anything, but um, we are going to be talking about a little bit about suicidality, uh, mental health, abuse, and trauma. We're also going to touch a little bit on um, disordered eating, eating disorders, and um, death, death in the family. Um, So if you're not in a good space for that, um, you know, maybe come back later or maybe skip this one. Because today we are talking about Heart Berries, a 2018 memoir by Therese Marie Myatt. Um, it is the story of Myatt and her personal journey grappling with trauma after a dysfunctional childhood growing up as an indigenous woman in the Seabird Island Van Reservation of the North Pacific. She was hospitalized with PTSD and bipolar 2 disorder and given a journal to write out her trauma. And this journal became Heart Berries. A lot of it is addressed to her lover or ex-lover, I guess, Casey. And it is a tribute to her mother, an activist and social worker, an examination on her relationship with her father, who is an abusive alcoholic artist, um, who was also murdered, and an examination of love in the face of shame. Um, And the writing is really, really beautiful and poignant and painful and really raw. It does, it gives you that vibe of you're reading somebody's personal right. journal. This is probably one of my favorite writing uh, techniques in that the address and the personal first-person content. I love that type of conversational writing, which is probably what I align with the most. Because mm-hmm. I'm not going to compare to this award-winning uh, novelist <laughs> at all or author in any way whatsoever. But 
this would be the way that I write. She does it in such a way that it digs into my heart. I don't yeah. know other way of saying that and uh, in, in just feeling like, yeah, I've thought these things. Uh, there's conversations in there where she talks and compares herself to white women. And even though I'm not Native or ind- Indigenous, I am Asian and grew up in a white world. And I, I felt it. I felt that pain. Um, but outside of that, just the way she has this inner dialogue that comes out onto pages is glorious. And I think it's so raw and so beautiful. But yeah, it is such a compelling piece um, if you are in a good place because it is fairly traumatic. Uh, yeah. Her life has, she's gone through some some things. <laughs> yes. And she writes in such a way that you feel it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a very, it's a quick read. It's a, I wouldn't say difficult, but it is like emotionally taxing, mm. emotionally draining. I couldn't put it down. I, it felt very electrifying, but it was one of those things where it's like, because of the way she wrote, she packs so much into like every word and every sentence. And it's all, it's so condensed, but so much is being communicated in everything. Yeah. That it felt like just alive almost and like electric and like, I don't know where this is going to go, but it feels, I don't know if scary is the right word, but like you're you're just on edge because it's unsettling. Yeah, 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 yeah. But very, very effective. And I, I thought it was really powerful and beautiful and I really enjoyed it. From NPR, quote, an illuminating account of grief, abuse, and the complex nature of the Native experience, at once raw and achingly beautiful. And yeah, as you read it, you see my sometimes fragile mental state reflected in the writing, but you also see healing and a reclamation. Yeah, and as I said, it it is largely directed to Casey uh, and kind of like their relationship and her sort of grappling with all of these things around that. I have to wonder with yeah. that because it is all, these are real people. I went through mm-hmm. half the book researching if there was reaction to yes. her writing because she is brutally honest mm-hmm. even, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, later on, but there's a, a small section about Paul Simon, the musician, yeah. and the mm-hmm. way she like paints him, it's not ugly. He doesn't do anything ugly, but it's just very direct about like, hey, white man profited. Good job. <laughs> and I had yeah. to go back and I was like, does he have a reaction to this mm-hmm. award-winning top, you know, 10 book uh, memoir? I didn't find one, just so you know. But I did <laughs> wonder because, especially when she's talking about Casey, she is open and completely raw about how she's feeling. Mm-hmm. And it's familiar. For any woman who felt gaslighted in any way and or secondary in any way in a relationship, it feels so real. But I have to wonder, like, I wonder what his thoughts are. Did he read this and think, oh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to get into that um, with this one, uh, like with many where we're not, you know, we're neither of us are Native American women. I've been a part of the Indigenous experience. We're going to use a lot of quotes and this one, I feel like I say this with all of them, and it's always true, but there were so many that I was like, all of this is quotable. All of this is good. Right. This is why everyone should read it. Everyone should read it. And and people are singing its praises, rightfully so. It's won a lot of awards. It's on so many must-read lists, including Emma Watson's. And I put that out there because I do, I've read a lot of books because of that list. So, okay. oh yeah, uh, but very, very, very well-deserved. Um, and yes, we highly, highly recommend it. So, yes, we are going to include a lot of quotes in this one around some pretty central themes. And one of the themes right out the gate 
is storytelling. So here's a quote that's at the beginning. My story was maltreated. I was a teenager when I got married. I wanted a safe home. Despair isn't a conduit for love. We ruined each other, and then my mother died. I had to leave the reservation. I had to get my GED. I left my home because welfare made me choose between necessities. I used a check and some cash I saved for a ticket away. I knew I would arrive with a deficit. That's when I started to illustrate my story and when it became a means of survival. The ugly truth is that I lost my son Isidore in court, the Hague Convention. The ugly truth of that truth is that I gave birth to my second son as I was losing my first. My court date and my delivery aligned. In the hospital, they told me that my first son would go with his father. Yeah, so that's kind of right at the beginning, setting Mm -hmm. up all of this trauma, all of this pain. And throughout, you hear kind of this idea of, you know, my story was maltreated. And the story of my, the women in my family especially has been maltreated. And seeing all of this trauma play out and then how people reacted to it and kind of, I think another really big theme throughout this is shame. And a lot of the shame around, again, she does so much with like very little words, so effective and so amazing. But throughout, you, you get this at the beginning and then throughout you get kind of more of the story behind it and the pain and trauma that it caused her and really just the sad <laughs> the sad situation behind it and all the all the reasons behind it. Right. Yeah, and again, this does kind of build up her own understanding of family. Mm-hmm. Trying to really come to terms with family and where she is with her mental health and what she has to do for herself, for her family, um, as well as finding love in the midst of all of that with not-so-great situations and admitting that these are not great situations. She is ridiculously vulnerable within mm-hmm. her book. And I, I I applaud that honesty in itself. And yeah, she does call out a lot of the fact that government and the system really screwed her over as an indigenous woman and has continued to do so and has been doing so for a while. So that's also another thing that you have to remember. Yeah. As she continues, it's too ugly to speak the story. It sounds like a beggar. How could misfortune follow me so well? And why did I choose it every time? I learned how to make a honey reduction of the ugly sentences. Still, my voice cracks. I packed my baby and left my reservation. I came from the mountains to an infinite and flat brown to bury my grief. I left because I was hungry. In my first writing classes, my professor told me that the human condition was misery. I'm a river widened by misery and the potency of my language is more than human. It's an Indian condition to be proud of survival, but reluctant to call it resilience. Resilience seems ascribed to a human conditioning in white people. Yeah, and I I think there's so many things that she touched on just there that I'm like, yeah, I feel, as we've talked about recently, just even in sort of our more superficial take on laughter, but the issues we were talking about were serious, where you, as a marginalized person, feel this like, it's too ugly to speak the story or like you feel a pressure to right. to make people more comfortable and that like no one wants to hear this because it's too sad. No one wants to hear this because it's too painful or will make them uncomfortable and how often marginalized people have had to do that and had to think about that and to have her like 
you know, <laughs> trying to make, I love the language she used, of like make a honey reduction of ugly sentences to oh, make right. them more palatable or so that you will listen. Like, it's painful, but you've got to listen <laughs> because this right. is what's going on. Her use of when she talks about the comparison to being a white writer or a white creative and, and talking about resilience is really pertinent to the entirety of the story. She actually wrote uh, also talking about how she felt like writers before her seemed to do the work of looking and being indigenous so we could look through it too, herself, meaning herself, obviously, in that it's taken this much for her to be able to talk about her indigenous background, but even still, it doesn't feel enough to be able to compare to those in, in the white uh, community who are doing this and are, are praised left and right. And mm-hmm. for her to do this is a big risk because we also know in marginalized communities, when we talk about mental health is not seen in a, in a, in a positive light to, to seek it out, to talk about it outright. So yeah. for her to talk about this, she's like, this is not what, <laughs> this is what white people do, essentially, right. uh, in this conversation. And I found that very interesting in the whole thing. Like, yeah, it, it, when we talk about it, when we look at the depth of it, it seems so much harder because she is of, of the indigenous background and it's, it's that more risk that she is taking in being this upfront and honest. Right. And, and just that that is a recurring theme as well of like these sort of positive spins that white artists get of like things like this, of negative or hurtful things versus like the, oh, you seem to be complaining too much or, oh, you should, you need help or like, <laughs> which right. might be true, but it's also very dismissive right. of what of what she's writing and, and being vulnerable with. And that's just something that I kept thinking about too, is like how we will often laud the art of generally white men if it's, you know, vulnerable or right. whatever in that vein. Whereas oftentimes with women and then every other intersection within that, marginalized intersection within that, be like... You know, it's a, yeah, <laughs> feminist buzzkill or whatever. Like, right. uh, yeah. So I think that was definitely throughout and is totally on point. <laughs> um, <laughs> so another thing, a, a big piece of this book when it comes to themes, and this is a lot in, in one idea, but like uh, grief and trauma and mental health and racism and sexualization and abuse and shame, and I would add it in there, like racial trauma and generational trauma, because you do get to see like um, her relationship with her grandmother and her memories of her grandmother and also of her mother, and then you've got her, and then you've got her children and her dad, but uh, just all these traumas that have impacted them and then impacted her in turn. So here's a quote. I knew I was not well. I thought of the first healer who was just a boy. My friend Denise told me the story. She called him Heartberry Boy, or Odemin. His name means strawberry in the language. Denise and I struggled and came up together. She named her son after the boy. The people in his village were sick and dying because the Indian world was shifting. The boy lost his mother. Odemin became a sorrowful kid who found solace in the dream world. He fell asleep and spun a restlessness that comes when people are waiting to die. Sometimes grief is a nothing feeling. And yeah, I just think that's so beautiful. And the way she describes grief captures so much of it. And also, yes, this is where the title comes from in part. Right. And, and the story goes on, but I just thought that was 
it encapsulated so much of this idea of dealing with all of this grief and sort of what <laughs> the stories that come back to you or the the memories that come back to you are the things that suddenly you think of and you can't stop thinking of and you're not entirely sure why <laughs> that that it relates to what you're going through in some way. But yeah, that was also something she excelled at was capturing this idea of what it's like to be dealing with trauma and to be dealing with grief. And it continues, I want to be polite and present myself as decent. I know the math of regret and nostalgia. I regret leaving you and I'm disappointed you let me go. I don't remember what I did. I know that I cried next to you and I was wearing lingerie. You were angry with me for wanting to die. More than that, you were upset that I was weak-minded. I was dramatic and unhinged. I couldn't play Kate. I know that's what I should have done. Yeah, and and like you said, Samantha, there's so many things in here, like even if, maybe not to the same extent, but if you've ever been in a relationship where <laughs> you felt gaslit or you were struggling, that you, it just hits home so, so well. And we have a lot more quotes to demonstrate that. But it, again, a lot of this is addressed directly to her, I mean, I guess on and off again, lover is the best term, <laughs> Casey. So she'll like directly be like, Casey, you did, you left me here. I came here because of you or whatever. Here's another quote. You used me. I know you think animals are sentient. You treat your dog well. I needed to talk to you. The way we operate ask a lot from me before I can ask something of you. And I want to include that one because I, I just, I connected with it so much of that idea of like, someone and sometimes like in my experience I don't want to speak for everybody but sometimes in my experience it's not anyone's fault in particular but if you enter into a relationship and you're dealing with trauma and you're dealing with all of these other things and it just asks a lot of you to quote like not rock the boat Mm -hmm. like there's already like kind of a power dynamic or a power difference and for me, like I constantly felt like I was failing because I wanted to be like the, in heavy quotes, normal, like no drama girlfriend. But that does ask a lot. And that does right. ask you to like hide a lot. Right. And then again, in my experience, the other person is expecting that and they get used to that. And then when you're starting to be like, you know what, <laughs> I'm a little tired of this. Like this is a lot of a performance for me and I'm struggling. They're like, wait, what, what? <laughs> right. Uh, This is not what I signed up for. Like, well, hmm, okay. (laughs) And here's another quote that we want to include. Uh, And this is also kind of related of the idea of what she kept from Casey. I didn't say that my mother had spent her life waiting for service. I waited with her in cafes for an order of french fries or something small we could afford. White women didn't greet her or consider our time. We walked into places and sometimes men heckled me. I said I was 12 and they often didn't believe me. My mother and I found solace driving hours out of our neighborhood where being Indian was not much of a crime. If I told you that, I would also need to stop and note the significance of so many other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I feel like just going off like that last thing of, you know, the way we operate, I ask a lot of me before I can ask something of you. Um, And this whole thing, this was an instance where 
he'd gotten kind of frustrated with her because she was upset about French toast arriving late or arriving cold. And this is her reasoning why, and this is why it was important to her. Um, but it was something that she felt she couldn't communicate to him because otherwise, right. all this other stuff <laughs> that they would have to talk about. That's a small bit that would unravel right. to so many things, the unravel. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and she continues on. My mind is overwhelmed with breakfast alone. I don't eat for days, so you can run your hands over my rib cage. You told me that you always want to eat ribs afterward. I don't eat for days because I can't afford it. The meal I ordered after being f***ed by you or anyone is something earned. Men objectify me to such a degree that they forget I eat. You feed your dog more kindly than you feed me. That's men. Um, yeah, that section in itself, when she talks about that, I kind of had that moment of like, oh yeah, if I was getting ready for dates, like I would find, and I found myself doing this a lot, that connection of like really trying to be the perfect girl and having issues about your body was such a thing that yeah, I would purposely not eat before a date in hopes that I would lose that water weight or whatever, just in case or whatever like it may have been. Because yeah, you want to be the perfect in however situation you see is perfect. And I guess for her right here, him making that comment even skyrocketed her her mindset, even though, again, she talks about, which is so sad, and I think we all have done this. It's kind of going back to the whole ridiculous sentiment that if they pay for a fancy dinner, you owe them something. Yeah. Yep. But it's kind of that same conversation of the fact that she's like, I earned my dinner. You forget to feed me. Because right. I can't afford it, but I don't, I'm not going to ask for it. But then you treat your dog so much kinder. And that mm-hmm. this dog thing does happen a lot because uh, the white woman's dog comes in to play a lot. Mm-hmm. And then she, I'm like, oh, ow. oh God, I, I feel this. Mm-hmm. And it makes me sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and also just like this through line of sexualization at like 12 years old at such a young age. Right. And feeling like that's how that's people see is. me. And that's, right. yep, exactly. Right. Um, And then she goes on to say, when you loved me, it was degrading. Using me for love degraded me worse. You should have just f***ed me. It was degenerative. You inside me, outside, then I leave, then I come back, get f***ed. You look down at me and say, I love you, I love you. I go home and degenerate alone. The distinctness of my bed and its corners are f***ed by my f***ing you. My agency is degraded. For comfort, I remember my hospital bed and the neutrality of the room I had. I was safe from myself and from you. I'm stupid, waiting for the phone to ring, thinking you might call. I drive to you and be no better for it. Yeah. 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 Again, like, I feel so many of us, even if it's not exactly the same or to the same level, can relate to this idea of when you... For me, like, you you know, like, something isn't right for you or isn't good for you and you keep doing it anyway and you see all of these, like, signs or things that bring memories of it throughout your own place. Like, it's kind of infiltrated your, you know, in heavy quote, safe space or, like, your apartment, your home. And so it's so hard when you catch yourself thinking about this person or this thing and you don't want to, but it's just all these memories of it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then having to grapple with, well, because we hear that all the time too, right? Of like, why didn't you leave? Or what was it that if it was so bad, why did you stay? And then 
again, for me, I don't want to speak in broad generalizations. You have to ask, like, well, I guess my self-confidence was that bad or, or whatever it is. Right. Like, face up, again, for me, I don't want to say for everyone, but like, yeah, why did I keep doing it? Uh, right. <laughs> I love the, I'm waiting for uh, the phone to ring because mm-hmm. I've done that. So the text, waiting for that text, yep. just in mm-hmm. case, hoping, did I forget? Let me turn my phone off and on. Right. Just in yep. case it's not working. Mm-hmm. But it's it, and hating yourself for doing that and just waiting, even though you yep. know this is not healthy. Right. <laughs> right. And it kind of goes back to that whole idea of like, wanting to be desired and wanting to be sexually desired, even if you don't really want the other person mm-hmm. <laughs> or like just kind of wanting to know or that that since that is how we are, the currency that women are often given or the value right. we're told we have is that you want that even if you don't want that. Right. That's <laughs> yeah, a real mess. Here's another quote. Nobody wants to know why Indian women leave or where they go. Our bodies walk across the highway from the dances of our youth into missing narratives without strobe lights or sweet drinks in our small purses or the talk of leaving. The truth of our leaving or coming into the world is never told. Yeah. And I thought that was really powerful too of just how invisible Native American women have often been treated when it comes to yeah individuals and just like Issues at large. Right. Well, she hits on to so many things, not only with the fact that they are ignored and erased, but just kind of that whole narrative for the missing uh, and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirited, a big part of the narrative and the reason that we don't hear much about it and or because people don't look into it is that really negative, toxic idea that these people, this indigenous community are are gone because they are drug uh, addicted yeah. and or mm-hmm. lazy and or sexually promiscuous. And, you know, they probably brought it onto themselves and this really toxic narrative. Uh, I mean, allowing that as if it's an excuse, it's just like, wait, it doesn't, if, even if any of that was true, they're still people. Like, I don't <laughs> understand why we wouldn't care about them disappearing. We do. Why don't we do more? This kind of narrative, like, no one really sees it. No one really cares about it. They don't care if I come and go. And that's right. such a beginning narrative, like, just not even caring that they left, point right. blank. And yep. why did they leave? Uh, and yeah. I think she did a really great job in making it so personable about this is the struggles that I've had, and this is how little people pay attention And that that in itself is the bigger conversation that we need to be having because we know when it comes to marginalized communities, they are more likely to have these issues where it causes them to need extra help. Because once again, the level of trauma and incidents and all of these things that happen are so easily ignored and no treatment is given and no funding Mm -hmm. is given. And so the likelihood of it skyrocketing and continuing on, especially generationally, is this whole bigger conversation of like, we've allowed this to happen. We as a community have allowed this to happen and us completely ignoring it and allowing for a 12-year-old to be sexualized without anybody stopping. uh, Hey, this is a weird conversation. Why are you even (laughs) talking to a 12-year-old? Shut your face. Uh And or thinking that is cute in some way. Like there's this whole weird narrative in that, uh, especially again in the brown community, indigenous community, uh, in the um, black community, where we've allowed it for so long. And then when we try to talk about it now, we still don't give it any spotlight uh, as opposed to a young white woman being missing or leaving. Like that's the first thing you notice. You kind of like, why is this? And I think she talks a lot about that in, in, in a personal way. Like, she doesn't talk about it outright, 
but right. you see a beginning here. You're yes. like, oh, there's the beginning. That's what we see. And mm-hmm. yet we're just letting it go as a, huh, it's just a narrative. It's fine. Right. Right. Um, and as we said, it is, she does such a great job of being like, this is a very personal individual story, but it tells so much more. Right. And I think part of that was with like when she talks about her own family and all of what they went through and all the trauma they went through and like this generational and racial trauma. And you can just, yeah, expand that out and see how that would, that this one story would impact this story and this story and this story and just sort of this domino effect. And and talking about that, I did want to include this quote about trauma. It comes kind of towards the end of the book, quote, My father, I said, just saying the two words cracked my voice. It was enough for him to know. He hurt me, I said. Just the three words were too many and enough for me to know. The rest of the year was a practice in language. Every new word became more horrific. I can say full sentences. In the shower, before I knew how to be scared or protect myself, I disappeared. Ten minutes of my life were enough to kill me. Every day I negotiate the minutes of my life remembering that I can't remember enough. I spend hours convincing myself that no child is ruined and the one inside of me is worth remembering fondly. My mother's looming spirit guides me some days, telling me that nothing is too ugly for this world. I am not too ugly for this world. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so painful and so powerful. Like, that's a someone who's gone through trauma that just rings so true. Right, right. How hard it is to speak it. And then once you do all of the, yeah, like all of these minutes and all of these things that you, that you don't realize are right. just reminding you of it. And and then like you, even if you don't think about it, it's like in your head that, you're, oh, you're not thinking about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oof, oof. Powerful There's stuff. so many layers to that. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And that convincing yourself that you're not too ugly for this world. So something else that we've been touching on, but uh, quite a few quotes on that um, we wanted to share is this theme of love or of this relationship she has with Casey. So here's a quote about that. The man I had been conditioning was not happy with me. He knew something was wrong, and that's when I wondered if maybe falling in love looked like a crisis to an observer. I just thought that I liked that, and I like, you know, this word of, you know, conditioning, because I just feel like there's a lot of things we do in relationships (laughs) that are these kind of negotiations, and when you think about it, it's strange that we behave this way, but it also is very telling of, where each person is coming from in their own past experiences. And I think that, again, as someone who's gone through trauma, the negotiations you make in these relationships, and a lot of these are happening in your own head, right? Like you're not really sharing them. Do you feel sort of like this colder? I I mean, it's not necessarily colder, but like words like conditioning or, you know, like trying to figure the other person out and keep yourself safe and maybe trying to hide these avenues of yourself or these pieces of yourself that are not as happy. And then maybe you kind of discuss it a little bit and the other person is like, oh, no, 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 I'm there for you. But then when they see, maybe they're not there for you. So here's another quote. You said you'd be on the other side of the door. That's how perfect love is at first. Solutions are simple and problems are laid out simply. I knew that the way I had been living was too complicated for you to see up close. I should have consulted a healer before I went further with you. So I like that one too, because I do think like 
I love to say, you know, perfect love is uh, how perfect love is at first and solutions are simple in the beginning. I do think it's very, very true. I think that is kind of also what we talk about a lot as well when we talk about how damaging it can be as fun as it is and as much as it makes sense when we watch a lot of like rom-coms and like, oh, right. <laughs> that's what love looks like. Okay. And then right. you get in a relationship, you're like, oh no, this is hard work. This is hard right. work. Right. The beginning changes very quickly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going back to your first quote about love, when he talks about conditioning, mm-hmm. I think she puts the blame on herself. So as a way to take it away from them, because we done this, mm-hmm. a lot of us who've been in toxic relationships and are not just not good pairing. We try to make ourselves what th- we think they want us to be. So we condition right. them to expect whatever mm-hmm. this fantasy of the person that you are, um, being the perfect girlfriend, being the, uh, if they want the manic pixie girlfriend, trying to be that. Like it's this weird level of like trying to meet the standards that you think they have for you. And I find that fascinating that she put that on herself instead of being like, yeah. oh, because I don't, because you didn't trust that they they would want the year. Right. Yeah. Um, and I did find that very familiar. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a great point. Yeah, that's a great point. And it, it does kind of go back to like also this idea of like low self-esteem, um, which is interesting because she talks about that in there and she's like, right. I don't think that's a thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a white person thing. <laughs> um, uh-huh. But yeah, kind of like not trusting someone who would want you and your true authentic self. And she continues on. I am familiar with death, and I remember it was heavy to hold. My mother's death was violent internally. I remember once an elder skinned a rabbit in our yard. He wanted to teach me how to do it. He said so many times that a body is a universe. He slit the rabbit open and pointed with his knife to the thick parts of it. He said the word entropy. I remember that when my mother died, a tube had stretched open the dry corners of her mouth. She was not given grace into the next world. When they pulled the tube from her throat, her lips were dry and her mouth fell open. Nothing is too ugly for this world, I think. It's just that people pretend not to see. Yeah, I mean, again, just such powerful language and imagery and that throwback to, you know, her mother saying that, like, nothing is too ugly for this world. Um, And yeah, the idea is people just don't want to see it, don't want to acknowledge it. Here's another quote. You don't appreciate that you've broken me. Lovers want to undo their partners. I feel unveiled in more work than you had bargained for. I was unsure of the currency of men and unaware that losing myself would feel so physical. Yeah, so (laughs) there's that undoing again, Samantha. (laughs) You're onto something. But yeah, also just this like, I, I feel that too of like, you don't know the currency of men. And then it's like we get in it too far and too late and you have you have conditioned yourself or felt like, you know, something was wrong with you or always putting the blame on you. And then you get so far in the relationship that it feels like you lost yourself. Or it's, I remember for me, it was in one relationship, it's like, I was just like waking up suddenly. Like, wait, <laughs> what's been happening here? Right. How did I get so far into this? You, it, go, it feels slowly at first and then it just snowballs. And she goes on, I feel like my body is being drawn through a syringe. Sometimes walking is hard. The gravity of Indian women's situations and the weight of our bodies are too much. 
I yeah, she just was so open with that, with all of her her experiences and her emotions around around all of this. And something else that we wanted to talk about is this theme of motherhood and family, which is throughout, as we mentioned at the top, she went through the trauma of losing custody of her child, having an abusive husband, um, an abusive father, the relationship with her mom, which was very complicated, very, very complicated. And yeah, like we said, all of this shame kind of throughout a lot of their stories. So here's a quote. The Indian condition is my grandmother. She was a nursery teacher. There are stories that she brought children to our kitchen, gave them laxatives, and then put newspaper on the ground. She squatted before them and made faces to illustrate how hard they should push. She dewormed children this way, and she learned that in residential school where parasites and nuns and priests contaminated generations of our people. Indians froze trying to run away, and many starved. Nuns and priests ran out of places to put bones, so they built us into the walls of new boarding schools. I can see my grandmother's face in front of those children. Her hands like rose petals, and her eyes were soft and round like buttons. She liked carnations and canned milk. She transcended resilience and actualized what Indians weren't taught to know. We are unmovable. Time seems measured by grief and anticipatory grief. I don't think she even measured time. So, so much trauma right there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. much generational trauma and just in her family. But I feel like she also did such a good job of like painting uh, these small details that make a person a person that say so much more about them. And she did that with, with her grandmother and... You know, I love the juxtaposition of like, she liked carnations and canned milk. And then I don't think she even measured time. Like, it's just so much encompassing so much in this person and and her memories of her. Yeah, uh, I do love how she does concentrate on the women of our family in, mm-hmm. in that level of realness and trying to be real open about things that she learned. She does bring to light a lot of conversations about being Native American and Indigenous in that uh, how she differentiates her life, like what it seems to be with the man, who I assume is white, uh, versus her family, uh, who are showing her and trying to remind her of the Native ways. It is interesting to see that like dichotomy for her where she Mm -hmm. feels broken versus where she may have been broken slash where she still needs that strength. Like Mm -hmm. it's kind of that build up. Again, Mm -hmm. she goes on, uh, what I feel struck with is something smaller in a less impressive world. I woke up today confused inside of something feminine and ancestral in its misery. I woke up as the bones of my ancestors locked in government storage. My illness has carried me into white buildings, into the doctor's office and the therapist with nothing to say, other than I need my grandmother's eyes on me, smiling at my misguided heart. Imagine their faces when I say that. Yeah. Oh, that's going back to what you were saying of needing that, the strength of the, the women in her family and how painful it was to lose that. Here's another quote. It felt like mom's funeral lasted a year. It felt like one long winter where my family told every story of hers by memory as if we were being interrogated. My mother's spirit loomed over us, imploring us to avenge her death, but there were too many culprits. From the government, to the reservation, to her own family, to whoever hurt her the very first time. I saw in pictures that between 13 and 14, my mother changed. 
that culprit, and then all our fathers, and the men who said they were down for the cause and then abandoned it like they did their children. Those men killed my mother. Even the sweet lovers who gave her hope are the culprits of her pain. Right. Uh, And one of the people who gave her pain was Paul Simon. (laughs) Yes. I need to put that out there. It seriously (laughs) struck me as odd. Like, in the the moment that I was like, wait, what? Yeah, I was like, that Paul Simon? (laughs) Right. I had to go and look, and I was like, I have to look at what this is. And essentially... Uh It took on uh, this, someone that she knew, the mother knew, helped provide background stories for them to do a musical, which Mm -hmm. got some heat, but also was uh, successful uh, for pretty much retelling Native stories without Native people. Mm -hmm. Again, problematic. And the mother really feeling like for a moment she was being rescued by this white man. And Mm -hmm. then once again, being disappointed. Uh, It was an interesting moment. But I'm like, damn. Her mom, she thought for just a minute, maybe he would change her life, and he really didn't. Yeah, and in fact, if I remember correctly, the reviews were very unkind to her. They were like, ooh. I want to say, okay, so the person who plays her is uh, Sarah Ramirez. Oh. From Grey's Anatomy, which she mentioned. She was like, the woman from Grey's Anatomy played her mother. So, yeah, she was played by Sarah Ramirez and her mom. I think the character was not so giving. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And her mom was actually really helpful in helping him get a lot of information. Mm -hmm. And they apparently helped pay for some groceries and such. Like, they they were paid a little bit, but not to the extent of what he made off of it. Uh, But I was like, well, Paul Simon, not a good guy, are (laughs) you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be uh, fair, I've never seen this play. I've never seen anything related to it. So I really can't tell you anything about that play. But just having that mentioned in the uh, memoir, I was like, wait. Right. What is happening? <laughs> right. And her dad was an artist and also had right. kind of, not the same experience, but something similar. Yeah. I was like, wow. <laughs> he thought he was going to be rich because the film, mm-hmm. a documentary was yeah. made about him because he was like, a really bad criminal, but a, and a talented artist. Like, mm-hmm. that seemed to be both of those things. hmm <laughs> <laughs> And she continues to write, The pain was a process to understanding. Men were born to hurt my mother in the flesh and the text, and she was my savior. The language was always wrong. Even in this account, I can't convey the pulse of her. In her sleep, I couldn't turn away. In love with her heavy breathing. She rarely slept, but when she did, it felt generative, and sacred like a bear's hibernation. Her small palms were red with heat. She always fell asleep with a book on her chest. It was the illumination of living light. And then here's final quote we wanted to end with. There is some stillness even in my history, a good secret and so much bad. It almost feels like a betrayal to have good thoughts. Sometimes I know part of me is still a ghost, walking next to my mother, looking for something to make an offering to, holding her hand. Either this feeling means part of me is dead or that she's alive somewhere inside of me. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like she did such a fantastic job of capturing grief and trauma, but also the humanity of all of the people in her life. And I mean, it's beautiful prose. It's it's so good. (laughs) And it's something we didn't mention is her conversations with her sons. Mm -hmm. So Isidore's one, and then she talks about the other sons that she kept and and how strong he seems to be for her. 
Yeah. She is real raw about the fact that she went through postpartum depression and just where that was for her and trying to be being pregnant and being off her medication. Like she was very raw about that experience. And I think there's so many women who have been pregnant and gone through that similar experience can really relate to. Mm-hmm. And again, being postpartum. And we've seen that come to light a little more with a little more giving of like, oh, <laughs> women go through some things when they're pregnant and after the fact. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, but not enough. Uh, but we talk about that as well as, again, we're talking about what that looks like for women who are indigenous women, women of color, who are often not given the same lenience as white women do. And we could talk about that with the removal of her first child and her not being able to fight that, first of all, because she was having her second baby. Secondly, because she was going through all of the mess, being off medication, having to uh, really have to come to terms with her mental health and what she needed to do for treatment for herself to be in a better place. That's partially what she's talking about. Of course, she's got so many things that she's talking about in this tiny memoir. And uh, I'm sure she has some more things to say. But yeah, we don't mention it too much in here, but she does write about that. And I think it's just, again, there's no solutions in this, just how she survived, essentially, like where yeah. she is today. And, it, and it's a beautiful, tragic, tragic tale, slash beautiful telling, I guess, of what she's been through. Yeah. Yeah, highly, highly recommend it. I was so moving. So go check it out, listeners, if you haven't already. In the meantime, if you have any book suggestions for our next pick, please send them to us. Our email is Stephanie and MomStuff at iHeartMedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer, Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.